Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and generally we have one of our physicians here alongside me, but today we're going to be talking about a topic that I think most of our longtime listeners know is very, very deep uh, to my heart, and that is the epidemic of suicide. It has impacted a generation, especially of young people, in a way that's frightening. For the 13th year in a row, the suicide rate has increased, particularly among people 18 to 25 years old. Ivan Maisel lost his only son, Max, to suicide, and it's the kind of tragedy that seems impossible to understand or to explain, and yet somehow Ivan, who's a senior writer at On3 and a former college football expert from ESPN, also an editor-at-large for ESPN Football, has written a stunning memoir that exposes and calculates the loss of a child as the all-consuming and unrelenting type of grief that it is. It's called I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye, a memoir of loss, grief, and love. Welcome, Ivan. Thank you, Sheila. I appreciate you having me. I share something in common with Ivan in that we both lost people to suicide, yes, but we also share two daughters who found one another at Stanford and became fast friends. And I I wonder if you've ever thought about it, Ivan, I have, that perhaps that friendship was grounded in their understanding of one another's pain. I don't think there's any question, Sheila, and and it wasn't anything overt. Uh, I think they did sense a kindred spirit in one another, and thank God they did. Yeah, Sophie had related to me that it was several months after she'd known Elizabeth that Elizabeth finally opened up to it. And I'm really interested in timing for when people are feel healed enough to talk openly and honestly about it. And it took you several years to write about your son, Max. What were you doing during those years? Healing as, as, as best I could. You know, it, and that's an interesting question people have asked me is writing the book, was writing the book therapeutic? Was it cathartic? And I feel, Sheila, as if I had to do all that work before I could be in a position to write coherently. You know, I used the line in the book, I borrowed a line from John Meacham, the historian in the book saying, you know, mountains are best viewed from a distance, (laughs) something to that effect. And I needed some sort of perspective. And it was almost as if I had to find a sweet spot between it's far enough away for me to see it, but not so far that I've begun to forget details or moments. And once I felt like it was time, it, it really flowed out. Honestly, you know, I wrote the book in about five months, five and a half months. You write, um, I had to learn that grief can be painful. I had to learn that in its early stages, it is unrelenting. I had to learn that grief is permanent. And I had to learn that accepting it helps, but does not make it disappear. I love that summary so much. I want you, if you could, to just explain a little bit about your own emotional background and your family of origin so people understand where you were versus where you came to. Well, one of the reasons I wrote the book was because I was terrible around grief and around people who are grieving. Part of that was upbringing. Part of that is coming up in the latter half of the 20th century as a male, as a Southern male, where you were you know, not encouraged to be emotive, to just stonewall emotion it was what you were told to do. And if I ran into grief, you know, I, I stiff-armed it. If I ran into people who are grieving, I would stumble and fumble to say one thing, and then I would check that box and say, well, you know, I'm sure they don't want to talk about it anymore, or, you know, I don't want to bring it up, you know, as if they didn't know <laughs> that somebody had died. Yeah. 
so that was sort of where the baseline of where I was when, when Max died. And uh, it was difficult to figure all that out that, that you just read, you know, that I had to accommodate the grief because it was not going to go away. Uh, my wife, Meg, says we don't deal in prepositions. You, know, you don't get through it. You don't get over it. You just learn to live with it and you learn to carry it with you. And that's the task. And it took me a, a few months to kind of figure that out. Max was your second child, and he was clearly quite different from both of your daughters. So could you explain Max from an early age? Max was a, he was a, he was unique. I, all children are unique. He was quirky. You know, my, my shorthand is a proof that God had a sense of humor that I, he, I, I was given a son that had no interest in sports. Uh, we bonded over humor. We bonded you know, as best we could. And I didn't do a great job of, of meeting him where he was. I, I tried to open the doors for him to come to where I was. And, and I didn't go through those doors myself to my great regret. Uh, but he, he was uh, very sensitive. He hid, he hid all of that sensitivity behind sort of a combination of shyness and a, and a wall that a part of was he was somewhere on the spectrum uh, was never diagnosed as being autistic, but he had trouble reading social cues and, you know, he had trouble communicating with his peers. He made most of his friends online, you know, loved anime, loved uh, video games in, in the way that many boys do nowadays. Uh, very picky eater, very tall, very tall, very thin, great hair, great eyelashes. Uh, you know, the world lost something there. Uh, that was Max. And you describe him so beautifully in his sensitivity and his funny sense of humor. There was a scene that really broke my heart when you and your wife were trying desperately to try to help him integrate with more real life friends. And you had seen sort of the anime playing card thing take off with everyone else. And so you suggested that he start a kind of club like that nearby and no one else came and i kept thinking i don't know how i would have dealt with the anger of those people who might have befriended my son who didn't because in in the scope of his death i think i would see that somehow as cruelty that might have helped him yes there there's some there are some of his peers that we had a great deal of trouble forgiving if we ever did. But, you know, you know, Sheila, you're not at high school, so you don't really know what's going on. And for us to say, and we, we had this conversation with Max a lot, just go up and ask people. You don't have to talk about yourself. Ask people about themselves. You know, it's, it's what I do for a living. It's what you do for a living. But he just could not do that. And it's like asking somebody, just go whip up a souffle. It's easy. Here's some eggs. You know, good luck. And he just, you know, it, it just, it was very difficult for him, you know, in our bumbling, naive parental way. Uh, we get led him down that path. You know, it, one of the tough things about losing a child is that you don't have a way to make up for those memories or you don't get to see them get past those problems. You know, and that's just so it's just something that you carry and regret. I want to talk a little bit about 
Max's depression because I, I, it was unclear to me exactly when his diagnosis occurred, how he reacted to the diagnosis of depression, and what the interaction with this other drug that he was given at college may have been because we know that suicidal impulse is often precipitated by a new drug change or something happening. So could you talk about that a bit? Sure. I'm not exactly clear when when he was diagnosed. And part of that is it's not that big a deal to me. You know, depression, I, I was diagnosed with depression at one point and I took medication and went to therapy. I still go to therapy. So I didn't really blink when he was diagnosed. I, I know he was in the used mental health services at RIT from the time he got there. And he was taking a rather heavy dose of medication and Max was a photographer. He was a photography major. And one of the side effects of the, of the medication he was taking was he began to have hand tremors. <laughs> he was a photographer. So he was prescribed something in January of 2015 to hopefully quiet the tremors. And there is anecdotal evidence that in some patients, the two medications he was on don't mix very well. You know, I, I don't know for, you know, I can't point to that was it. You know, I think there were a lot of things that he began to spiral and they all just made the slide faster and slicker. You know, I believe that was one of them. Would you just talk about how you learned about Max's death? Sure. Uh, it was a Monday night in February of 2015, which on the East Coast was, and in New England specifically, just uh, one of those once every 10 to 15 year winters, unrelentingly bad. And Rochester is RIT, Rochester, New York, being on the shores of Lake Ontario is even worse. And we just had a, a lot of snow, a lot of cold. I think the night he died, the temperature was around zero. I got a phone call on a Monday night from a sheriff in Monroe County, where Rochester is, and he asked for Meg uh, because the car Max had at school was registered to Meg and she was not home. And, you know, this is Ivan Mazel, Max's dad. How can I help you? He said, well, his car is parked uh, at the park at Lake Ontario, which I knew right where it was. It was a mile away from where we have gone every summer to visit family. And, you know, someone saw him walk toward the pier 24 hours ago and uh, did not see him come back. And we were called and we were, we were unable to find him. Have you heard from him? No. I knew at that point, Sheila, he was gone. Meg, my wife, his mom thought, well, surely this is some sort of miscommunication or he's just out of pocket. But I, I just knew it, you know, logic gave only one conclusion. So that was Monday night. We drove to Rochester Tuesday and, and it became clear over the course of the week that he was gone. And it was a three week period before they actually found his body. No, no. They searched Lake Ontario for three weeks unsuccessfully. And wow. they finally said, we're going to have to let nature help us find him. And if that happens, and we didn't really know, and it, it was eight weeks before the water was warm enough uh, for his body to surface. And some poor fisherman in the middle of April you know, happened upon his body. I'm wondering, Ivan, if you'd take a moment, I would love for you to read page 66, where you say, 
by not being secretive. We didn't act as if Max's death deserves secrecy down to ended his life. Okay, sure. I think this is probably one of the most important pages in your entire book for people to understand about the importance of honesty after someone dies by suicide. By not being secretive, we didn't add to our considerable burden. By not being secretive, we didn't act as if Max's death deserved secrecy. The first rule of stigma is that it's a badge of something to which you don't want to be attached. By not being secretive, if someone thought Max's death was shameful, or if someone didn't want to participate in a conversation about Max, that would be their burden. I hope that's not inconsiderate. I don't mean it that way. To this day, I don't broadcast how my son died. I don't shy away from it either. I play a lot of golf, and invariably, when playing with someone I don't know well, the conversation on the walk down the fairway turns to children. How many kids do you have? I make sure to modulate my tone. I don't mumble. I don't speak with an air of apology for answering an unloaded question with an emotional blast. The only hurt I suffer is that I don't answer, as I did for 21 years, in chronological order. We have two girls. 29 and 24, I say, and our son died six years ago. He was 21, a junior in college. He went into a spiral and we didn't know it and he ended his life. The reason that I think that that is such a brilliant and honest part of your book is because I think that in addition to the complicated nature of grieving someone who dies by suicide, beginning to tell the story is very, very tricky. You don't want to go to a cocktail party and have to have that conversation. And yet in order to actually come to terms with a person's suicide, that's exactly the way you have to respond. And I'm wondering if you had any missteps where you weren't describing that that way, where you weren't talking about what happened. And then you began to feel the specter of fraud that I felt when I wasn't actually telling the truth about what had happened because I just didn't want to go into it. I did not. Uh, Sheila. And, and the reason I didn't is I decided that first week when we were all, my entire family and Meg's entire family, we all gathered in Rochester. The police originally said, we're not going to label this a suicide until the evidence tells us that. And it took them about three days of doing forensic work on his credit card to figure out, yeah, there's some circumstantial evidence. And I decided I was going to tell our families that. And the reason I did it was I had trouble putting one foot in front of the other. You know, I lost eight pounds that first week. I wasn't eating. I didn't want to have to keep in my a roll call in my head of who I was telling what. And as I just read, if that made whoever I said it to uncomfortable, that was not my issue. That sounds like a jerk. You know, well, I, I've already read all that. You know, I did. I really did it out of uh, self-preservation. It was just easier for me to be honest. I think that one of the reasons we're continuing to see the suicide rate increase is that the people who are survivors of suicide loss actually haven't come to that conclusion. 
that the stigma is created by the secrecy and shame that surrounds mental illness, that it's perpetuated when someone dies by suicide. And then there's this uncomfortable, untruthful nature of how they died. And that if we began to actually put it out there in the public realm as the public health crisis that it is, rather than this shameful thing, how much we could really move the needle. So I just appreciate that so much. And it was just completely born of instinct, it sounds like. It's incredible. I didn't do it out of any sort of, uh, at least at the outset, out of a crusade. You know, the one parallel I kept thinking is that in my parents' generation, people didn't talk about cancer out loud. That's right. You know, it would be like there was some sort of stigma attached to having cancer. And now, you know, everybody recognizes that it's an awful disease and that there are billions of dollars being directed to fix it, cure it. And, you know, maybe, you know, we could do that same sort of thing with mental illness. You have such a huge following. When I told my partner that I was interviewing you, I think it's the most excited he's been. And I've interviewed <laughs> presidents and Madonna and all kinds of rock stars. But because you were on ESPN for so long as the college football expert, I'm wondering how those particular fans have reacted to your willingness to be so open about this really painful topic. Oh, uh, I'd say 99% plus have been supportive and appreciative. You know, I, I can think really of one just mean, you know, bad tweet. And obviously that's the one you think of, right? But, yeah. uh, and I did take a picture of it because I, want, I wanted to have it. But the, just countless people, both in the industry, coaches, uh, administrators, and fans have just been very nice and very supportive. And, and I appreciated it then and now. How often are you thinking about now that you have high profile athletes like Naomi Osaka and, you know, many others coming forward and saying, I'm suffering right now, I'm stepping back from this. How often is mental health and the mental health of athletes in the news in the way, in the complicated, deep, rich way that it needs to be? I think it's good that they are being upfront about it. And I think the media by and large is being responsible in how it is dealing with their issues. You know, it's a tricky thing, but it goes back to what we were just saying. I think the more open the athletes are about what's bothering them, the better off they will be, the better off fans will be to understand, hey, if that's happening to Kevin Love, if that's happening to Naomi Osaka, maybe that's what's happening to me. Maybe it's okay. I should get help, you know, and, yeah. and that, that can only be for the better. I'm often perplexed by how you handle it in the world of sports, Ivan, because the very nature of an athlete who endures, you have to endure pain, you have to endure uncomfortableness, you have to endure the kind of fatigue. If you're thinking about what makes great athletes is that they actually can compartmentalize and shut off pain. So how do you let them begin to relate to this deep emotional pain? I think it's a very interesting question. It's tricky. It's absolutely tricky. And, you know, there's a saying in football that, you know, you shouldn't play injured, but you can play hurt or something wow. to that effect. You know, you, you should ask for help, that it's a sign of strength to ask for help. I'm beginning to hear that, wow. you know, in the last two or three years. Now, listen, if I'm in the pros and my scholarship isn't guaranteed anymore and my job depends on me playing, I may not say something. And, you know, and that's where it gets really difficult. And, you know, there's no easy answer. I think the decision makers and the general public are more open 
to the idea that you don't have to be physically disabled to be disabled. It can be something that's mental, can bother you, uh, can disable you. I have spoken to so many former athletes whose, you know, the peak of their career was collegiate ball, and they talk about the camaraderie and the serotonin push you get from this deep, deep training and the sense of who you are being something that's elevated and then boom, it's gone and you're out into the world and maybe you're not working out anymore because you think it's easier to watch Netflix and eat chips and suddenly they're in <laughs> tailspin. I really do wonder if the college sports and the pros are going to begin this kind of mental health resiliency training as part of training when they'll finally look at it that way. That's a great point. I know at the college athletic level, there has been a big push. My friends at Kim and Mark Helinski at Helinski's Hope Foundation. You know, Tyler Helinski was the quarterback at Washington State who ended his life nearly four years ago. And they have created this foundation to promote wellness and good mental health among athletes. And the response of university administrators, it's been like, you know, they can't get enough of it because they recognize they have a problem. And schools are putting resources into it. The University of Nebraska now has five mental health professionals in its athletic department. That 10 years ago would have been in, unheard of. And 30 years ago, they would have said, get out of here, get tough. It's progress. They're, they're trying. I want to just return to the book, if we could, for a minute. When there is any kind of new trauma in a person's life, there's always this sort of echo of our biggest traumas, the echo of our biggest grief. And I was wondering if during the pandemic and during your departure from ESPN, all of the Mac stuff came right back up to the surface for you again because of that echo of grief. That's a good question. You know, oddly enough, I had a vent for it. You know, well, let me start by saying, you know, when ESPN called me, it'll be a year ago next month to say they weren't renewing my contract, um, was not the worst thing that had ever happened to me. You know, <laughs> so in that sense, Max has provided me perspective about a lot of things. And then once the pandemic hit was right about when I was writing, shaping the proposal to write the book. So when everything shut down, I had a project to work on. And it's really remarkable how that sequence of events took place. But the pandemic hit in March, you know, June 1st, I think I signed my contract to write the book. So right there, March, April, May, I was trying to sell the proposal. And then from June on is, you know, when I really wrote the book in earnest. I want to just quote again, your writing is just so beautiful. Um, oh, I wish I'd watched you more on ESPN. So I know how you well, I wasn't on TV a lot, but you know, you, can, you know, I mean, I'm working now at on3.com. So I'm, I'm, I'm writing there. So yeah. It's a riddle answered only by feel. This is an elevated form of grieving. You must calculate how much of you to leave behind, how much of him to bring with you. All these words just got me. And how to carry forward while maintaining balance and nimbleness. I often think about this um, because grief is always in proportion to how much we love the person, right? and that you never really recover from it. But how much of your waking hours do you allow yourself to think about your son? And how much of it do you put towards your work? And how do you ever manage the days when you can't stop thinking of your son? I decided pretty early on, as you read, you know, I literally, I couldn't stay where he was. And that if I tried, I was just going to lose, not only would I have lost Max, but I would have lost whatever I was going to miss 
by being in the cocoon that I was what I had left of Max. So I just decided that I was going to keep going. And the one thing I think that really helped me was this concept of grief as love. To me, it sort of dawned on me there was a parallel between how much I grieved Max and how much I loved Max, and that this grief was really just the form that my love took for him after he died. And that allowed me, as someone who wanted nothing to do with grief before Max died, or the grieving, to let it wash over me and let it happen and to get it out and to bring it with me. You know, all the little tricks you play in your head to try to make sense of what your life has become. And that's really, Sheila, that's what I decided that I couldn't stay where he was. And, you know, there are times when I think of him and I'm overwhelmed, but I understand that those feelings are temporal, you know, they're temporary. And I just sort of don't fight them, let it happen, and then keep going. There's a quote in my book that I have the same strategy, and mine was always around, um, look to the living, love them and hold on. And I know that you know yes. your daughter, Elizabeth and Sarah are both examples of you continuing to look to the living and the love that you put into this book is obviously part of that decision, Ivan. So I thank you so much. Thank you. Bye.